0: This week's episode of Old Time Radio Forever, your host Matt Perry here. So excited to be back with you for another week of Old Time Radio goodness. I want to remind everyone that I have an email address set up for this podcast, Old Time Radio Forever at gmail.com. I would love to hear where you're listening from and take requests for radio shows or to just hear how you found out about the podcast and if you enjoy it. That's Old Time Radio Forever at gmail. Tonight, we have a doubleheader of two of, obviously, my favorites. I only play my favorites. (laughs) I'm not going to subject you to subpar old-time radio. Our first show tonight comes from Orson Welles and the Black Museum. The episode is called The Old Wooden Mallet on Old Time Radio Forever. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London.
1: Black Museum, a repository of death, a repertorium of violence. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames which houses Scotland Yard is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a teacup and its saucer, a lady's parasol, a surveyor's chain, all are touched by murder. Take this mallet. It's a familiar object, a wooden mallet, worn, got a wooden head, marked, nicked with all its uses. Maybe you have one in the cellar, in the forgotten tool chest at the bottom of your closet, in the toolbox of your car. But I doubt if you would care to own this one.
2: Hello. Here's something, Constable. Just an old mallet, Sergeant. Yes, notice the grease on it. And these... They look a bit like hair, don't they? Human hair. Well, anyway,
1: today... the mallet can be seen in a very special place of honor. In the Black Museum.
3: From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police... We bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's gallery of death. The Black Museum.
1: Well, here we are. The Black Museum. Scotland Yard's very special, very particular museum of murder. Here, here lies death, row on row of cabinets. And in the cabinets, each in its place, each with its simple white card detailing victim and killer time and place, the weapons many of which you couldn't conceive as weapons, line these stone walls. Now oh, here, here for instance. This is a woman's handkerchief, a bit of lace at the edges, crumpled, yellowish with age, yet stuffed as a gag in its owner's throat. It stifles screams, this handkerchief, and the sound of death. Here, a length of heavy chain. Once this chain enclosed a rich man's driveway. It was wrapped around his legs. Another time, weighted his body in his private lake. Until the grappling hooks took hold. Cool. And here we are. The mallets. The little white card says, in part: Guy Fox Day, Bonfire Night. Guy Fawkes. That's November 5th. It's an old English tradition, you know. The celebration of Mr. Fox's attempt to blow up the House of Commons, the English House of Congress, almost 350 years ago. Every November 5th, bonfires of all sizes are to be found on the English countryside as part of this celebration. That's why, you see, no particular attention was paid to a particular bonfire near a highway in Northampton, one November 5th. Although one fellow did comment. Quite
2: a blaze, that one, eh, Davy?" Yeah, flames the street 15, 20 feet. Silly to build a fire that big way out of here. Well, maybe the fellas wanted London to see it, eh? <laughs> well, every man to his own idea, like I always say. You see, no particular attention for
1: that moment. Now, listen a moment. Yes, a man running up the road past the two fellas trudging
2: home. Hey, mister, anyone at at Bonfire? Didn't look in a hurry. getting on to town. Yeah, I see. He's troubling. Think he's going to catch a train here about this time of night? (laughs) Might as well save his breath and walk. Too bad if he'd been walking. If Marty and Davy hadn't been on
1: the road just then, if the fire hadn't been quite so spectacular, even for Guy Fawkes Bonfire Night, if... Hmm. However, the ifs don't count. Davy was a touch curious about that bonfire now as he and his friend came almost abreast of the place.
2: Mighty big fire. Think we ought to take a look, Marty? Oh, I'm tired. Fella said there wasn't nobody over there. He didn't. Said he didn't look. Well, I'm going to. Those spots get into the trees, we can have trouble, the wind and all. Oh, all right. Have it your own way. Hey, yeah, blammy. You can feel the heat right over here. Here, that's no bonfire. It's a car burning. Here, we got to get help. This will make trouble. Come on!
1: The two men dashed for town in the wake of the man who passed them, and there in the village, they found the local police constable. Quickly, they gathered tools left over in the day's bombing and buckets, stirrup pumps, and raced back to the fire in the constable's old car. They didn't waste talk at the scene matter of minutes the blaze is under control a few minutes more and they could get close enough to see into the car or see into what was left of it
2: not too close men there's a lot of heat there Mm. constable Mm. point that flashlight over there where to the right no more to the right the front seat looks like a bundle of rain oh that's no bundle that's what's left of a man
1: twisted heap, but still recognizable as the body of a man. When the first shock was passed, the local police constable ordered the men to stand watch while he telephoned.
2: Before dawn, the experts were on the job. Uh, All right, Sergeant. What have we got so far? Number of the car, sir. MU 2489. Some fragments of the clothing. Garter buckles, belt buckles. Mm -hmm. A few pieces of cloth. That's about all, Inspector. Yeah, not much to go on. Oh, well, maybe pathology will give us something. Meanwhile, trace the registration, find the owner, search the area around here carefully. Routine, Sergeant. Let me know. Yes, sir. The usual. Now then, you two. Yes, sir. I see. Uh, About this fellow who passed you running away from here, what did he look like? Well, he was pretty dark last night, sir. Well, he had no hat on. Yes, sir. Mott is right. No hat, but a top coat and a briefcase. I see. Anything else? Notice his hair? Well, it was dark. seemed like a lot of it, uh, sort of a round face. You couldn't see his eyes or anything like that. Uh, How old do you think he was? He was running pretty fast, Well, Nobody over 35 could run like that with a coat on and all. (laughs) Unless he's been an athlete, of course. Oh, well, no matter about that. Anything else you remember about him? Not me, sir. Here, uh, Inspector. Do you think he had something to do with this? We're not ready to think yet. First, the facts have to be gathered. We'll get out this fellow's description. He may recognize himself and offer to help. Meanwhile, we'll find the owner of the car.
1: A great deal of... The fellow didn't offer any help. All the newspapers carried his description, but there were no results. The number of the car did bring results, however, and the person of a youngish woman who gave her name as
4: Nora Williams. It was my husband's car. He works as a salesman for a firm in Northampton. He's on the road a lot. He set out this time on the 4th.
2: There's um no use your viewing the remains, Mrs. Williams, but perhaps you can identify these
4: uh, what are they
2: garter buckles, a belt buckle
4: oh, that's all uh, that's all that was left.
2: Are they familiar to you, Mrs. Williams?
4: No, no, not at all. My husband never wears a belt, only braces.
2: I see, uh, Mrs. Williams was your husband on his way to his firm, uh, the home office, so to speak? I don't know. Oh, he didn't say?
4: No. And I called the firm. They said they didn't expect him until next week.
1: Williams. Robert Williams. Owner of the Burn car. Never wore a belt. His firm didn't expect him for a week. Interesting. Maybe not quite as interesting as the little scene in progress under the wreck of the Burn car.
2: Hello. Here's something, Constable. Just an old mallet, Sergeant. Yes, notice the grease on it. And these. They look a bit like hair, don't they? Human hair. There it is, Inspector. Found it about ten yards from the wreckage. Oh, just an old mallet. No weathering of the paint. Eh, grease, bits of hair. How far was it from the petrol, Jim? Just a few feet. Another few steps away, that scorched area began. Oh, the main area or that sort of trail we found burned through the weeds? The trail, sir. Ah. You're reconstructing something, Sergeant. Let's have it. Well, sir, suppose that someone hit Williams with the mallet and drove the car off the road. Mm-hmm. Then threw some petrol from the tin on the car and laid a kind of trail of it until the tin was empty. Yes. This party might have tossed away the mallet, dropped the tin... And thrown a lighted match onto the gasoline. It's possible, Inspector. Yeah, You may be closer than you think. Pathology reports that the man who died had been drinking heavily and that the bits of cloth we found had been soaked in petrol. Soaked in it, sir? And not burned? The cloth came from the armpits of the dead man's jacket. Soaked to the armpits in petrol? Whoever wanted Williams out of the way was thorough, to say the least. Yes, but we don't know yet, Sergeant, if the corpus delicti is Williams. All we know is that Williams is missing, and his burning motor car contained a corpse. Yes, sir. But if the body isn't Williams, then our missing man mm-hmm. may be Williams, and maybe a murderer. Well, we'll see. There wasn't
1: much to see. No Williams. No identity for the corpse. Just a few bits of blackened metal. Funny-looking mallets and a bit of scorched earth, a pathologist report, but no Williams. That was all. And then quite suddenly, there was a plethora of Williams.
5: My name is May Williams. I haven't heard from my husband for three days. It's not like Robert. We were married in May. He wanted it then because my first name is May.
4: I'm Dortha Williams. I married Robert Williams two years ago. Our home's in Brixton.
5: I have a little boy, Robert Jr., of course. I left the hospital to come here, Sergeant. Our son was born just two weeks ago. He's our second child. Robert and I have been married three years. He was at the hospital on Guy Fawkes' day just before he left on his trip. I can hear him saying, Now, Elizabeth, don't you worry. I'll be back in five days.
2: I interviewed Mrs. Williams myself, Sergeant. Her first name is Nora. I know it seems incredible, Inspector, so I checked the records first. Every one of these women is married to a Robert Williams, and every one of them says the license number of his car was MU2489. Mm, Four of them. London, Brixton, Greenwich, and Bournemouth. And three children. What have we here, Sergeant? Motive for murder... ...or suicide.
1: And that mallet can be found today in an honored position in the Black Museum. Inspector Lorch and Sergeant Braden found themselves of a common, if curious, state of mind... There was the very human and male tendency towards some small admiration for a man who could keep four wives reasonably happy. And most men have their difficulties with one. And there was the very stern necessity of finding this Robert Williams who disappeared apparently into thin air. Or who'd been burned to death on bonfire night in a blazing automobile. However, Inspector Lorch and Sergeant braddon had something to work with now. They had three wives. The first one to be questioned was Dortha.
2: Dortha Brixton. What can you tell me of his usual route in his business, Mrs. Williams?
4: Nothing in much, Inspector. Robert never talked business much at home.
2: Oh, what then, Mrs. Williams?
4: What then? Oh, and what did he talk about? That's right. Oh, pleasant things, the cinema, football matches. He was a great one on sports. And after a while, he liked to talk about the baby. Bob is only six months old, you see.
2: Yes. Was there any regular time he was at home, like the first and third weeks of the month, for instance?
4: No, sir. He'd be at home when he could. It's a bit difficult at first getting used to that, but I managed. And he's so regular with the household money. Every Monday morning in the mail if he isn't at home. Mm, By cheque, Mrs. Williams? No, sir. By money order. Or in cash, sir.
2: Uh, Have you cashed in the last money order? Would you know where it was drawn?
4: No, I can't say, sir. I never took notice of that. Oh, Inspector?
2: Nothing much there.
1: Nothing much except a picture of a quiet, rather shallow fellow interested in sports. It was Sergeant Braddon who took on May Williams.
2: May Williams. She's young and quite pretty and very frightened. Are you Mrs. Williams? Three days is a long time.
5: Like three years, almost. He wrote me every night he was away. Now, oh, Sergeant, that wasn't my Robert in that car, was it?
2: We don't know. Not yet, anyway. Suppose it wasn't. Suppose your husband has just disappeared.
5: Oh, he'd never do that. Robert's a wonderful man. Athletic, thick, dark hair, and a round face, almost like a boy's.
2: Oh. That much tell is with the man on the road, at any rate. We hope we can help you find your husband, Mrs. Williams. Elizabeth Williams is no fool. And a newborn
1: baby can be quite a problem when your only means of economic support has disappeared.
5: You see, Inspector, he told me this trip was taking him to Kent. And now the car's turned up in Northampton. Well, you can see why I'm so worried.
2: Uh, And under those circumstances, of course.
5: I never questioned Robert very much about his trips. I guess I was too glad to see him home. And he never stayed long enough to wear out his welcome. Ours wasn't a slippers and pipe kind
2: of existence. Mm. And do you have many friends in your neighborhood there in Bournemouth?
5: I do. Robert never cared to go out much.
2: I see. Well, for a man of about 35, that doesn't seem, well, too normal.
5: We liked each other's company, and there isn't very much money. So when Evelyn was born, we let ourselves get tied down. Now that Gerald's here, well, even more so. Mm.
2: And you say he was at the hospital on Guy Fawkes' day?
5: Yes, he brought flowers. Oh, I told him he shouldn't spend money on frippery like that, but it was sweet, and... Yes, he he did say something about tomorrow will have to take care of itself.
1: Of course, not one word to any of the four women about the others. This was a matter for the inspector and the sergeant to keep strictly to themselves for a while at least. But beyond this, nothing. No sign of Robert Williams. Routine, if thorough, checks were made of the four areas where the four women lived.
2: Inspector Lord here. Yeah? Call for you, sir. A Mr. Thomas Brickwell from Farringham. Oh, I don't know any Brickwell. He says he wants the inspector in charge of the Williams case. Oh, does he? All right, put him through, Sergeant. I'll speak to Mr. Brickwell. Yes, sir. Inspector Lord speaking. My name is Brickwell. I own a dry goods shop in Farringham, 215 Harley Road. Go on, Mr. Brickwell. I'm fed up with this Williams fellow. I think it's high time you police did something about it. Uh, well, we hope to, sir, quite soon. Then why don't you pick him up? Today. Have you any idea where he may be? He's on the 10.30 bus for Bournemouth. What? Left my house just a while ago. As far as my daughter Mary is concerned, I'd be just as pleased if she never saw him again. Oh, is he your son-in-law, Mr. Brickwell? Not yet, and never, if Mary will listen to me. I don't like the whole thing, Inspector. Turns up without his car, then the car is reported burned up, and Williams won't go to the police. Uh Mumbles something about not wanting to be involved. It's a funny business, and I'm interested in protecting my daughter. Well, you've been most helpful, Mr. Brickwell. We'll be in touch with you shortly. Good day, sir. Good day, Inspector. Yes, sir? Sergeant, our man is on the bus that left Farringham for Bournemouth at 10.30. Check its first stop and pick him up. It looks as if he left his latest conquest to visit his latest offspring. I beg your pardon, sir? Is your name Williams? Robert Williams? Oh, yes, it is. What can I do for you? I'm from the CID, sir. I hope you don't mind coming along. Inspector Lorch would appreciate a word with you. May I see your identification? Of course. Here you are. I I see you very well, Sergeant. You know, it's a little strange. Actually, I was on my way to see you.
1: Well, that was his story. And he stayed with it all the way. He was on his way to the yard to tell his story. And it was quite
2: a story. Let's have that again, Mr. Williams. I picked up this hitchhiker, you see, just below Northampton. He had a bottle and began to drink rather steadily. see? I was just about on the verge of asking him to leave the car when the engine began to cough. I was uh, getting out of petrol, so I pulled over to the side of the road and off. My passenger seemed to be asleep. I, I took the petrol tin from the back, the one I keep for such emergencies, you see, and just as I started for the road, the man called out. Oh, he wasn't asleep then? <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, did I have a smoke on me, he wanted to know. I tossed him a cigar. Never never smoke myself, but just keep them for the customers. You, you know how that is. Yes, yes, of course. Go on, Mr. Williams. Well, I started for the road again, and suddenly I had a kind of whoosh behind me. I, I looked, and my car was a sheet of flame. My passenger was in the middle of it. I must have panicked. The next thing I knew, I was running up the road. And that's all you remember? That's all. Anything you want to ask him, Sergeant? Yes, sir. Mr. Williams, you took your briefcase with you when you went for petrol. I was afraid my passenger might steal it. He had his hand on it several times earlier. You don't wear hats, Mr. Williams. I must have lost it. When I realized I was running away, I realized, too, that I had no hat. I I bought a new one. How about trouser belts, sir? No, only braces. That's all. Thank you, Inspector. Now, uh, tell us, if you will, Mr. Williams, why you never came forward until we... uh, found you. Oh, that. Well, I, I guess you'd better know. You'll find out anyway. Women. Too many of them. You are married, aren't you? To one of them. Nora. A loyal girl. No questions asked. Wonderful woman. Yes, she is. We've talked to her. In fact, she's on her way here now. You won't mention what I told you, gentlemen, about the others. Between us men, that is. Oh, yes, we'll respect your confidence, Mr. Williams, as far as the law allows. Uh, Mr. Williams, did you have a mallet in the toolbox of your car? Yes. Y- yes, I did. I used it for pounding dents out of fenders. Did you take it out when you stopped along the road on bonfire night? Oh, come to think of it, I did. The uh, cap of the petrol tin seemed stuck, and I, I think I used it to loosen the cap. And then? Well, i I must have dropped it near the car. Yes, you must have. Well, that'll do for now. If you'd care to wait for your wife, Nora, you can wait in the next room. Oh, thank you, gentlemen. I'll do just that. This way, Mr. Williams. Thank you, Sergeant. Thank you very much. Well, sir? Four women. Not too much money. You pick up a tramp no one will ever miss, get him drunk, burn your car and the tramp, let the world think you died in your own car, and start over. Seems so simple. It's really quite complicated. And where there are complications, there are always discrepancies. Aren't there, Sergeant?
1: Discrepancies. Yeah, several. Did you notice them? I mean, you take the business, the mallets, the three extra wives, the disposal of the petrol tin. Holes, big ones. And of all people, it was Nora Williams who supplied the next one.
4: If I may, Inspector, I'd like to have my husband's wallet returned now.
2: Oh, is there something in it he particularly wants?
4: Yes, some of the money. He's out of tobacco and wants to buy some cigars. Oh. I never saw such a man for smoking. Pipes, cigars, cigarettes. He certainly loves tobacco. (laughs)
1: Robert Williams lied on that score in
2: how many other instances? We found the petrol tin 15 yards from the wreck. How did it get there, well, Mr. Williams? I, I must have carried it there and dropped it or something. <laughs> Our pathologist states positively that the hairs caught on the mallet are human hairs. How do you account for that, Mr Williams? How should I know? Maybe somebody got hit with it somewhere, sometime. How should I know? You said you don't smoke. And then your wife asks for your money to buy tobacco. Why did you lie, Williams? What's she kind of do, frame me? I suggest, Williams, that you had petrol in that tin all the time. That you poured it over that vagrant after you knocked him unconscious with a mallet. That you laid a trail to the car and set fire to it yourself. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. What for? Why should I do a thing like that? We have that answer, Williams. All four answers. In London, Brixton, Greenwich and Bournemouth. And a possible fifth in Faddingham. Your story doesn't wash, Williams. We're charging you with willful murder. And I warn you that anything you say will be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence. Now, about this mallet. (laughs)
1: And that mallet can be found today if you look for it in an honored place in the Black Museum. No one actually saw the crime committed by Robert Williams, did they? But the circumstances were clear, and certainly Williams' life was the life of a rascal, to say the least. However, it may interest you to know that the day following Williams' execution, a London newspaper published a last-minute interview with a prisoner in which he confessed the crime, admitted the details as Inspector Lodge had deduced them, and revealed for the first time that the man he killed was entirely unknown to him, a vagrant whom he'd picked up in his car once or twice before. To the extent that Williams paid with his life justice was served, of the four women who'd been his dupes, nothing is known except that they picked up the pieces of their lives as well as they could. And the mallet, our exhibit, can be found in its customary place in Scotland Yard, in the Black Museum. And now, until next time, till we meet again in the same place, and I tell you another story of the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obedient for yours.
0: That was Orson Welles starring in the Black Museum on Old Time Radio Forever. Hope you enjoyed that. That's the second Black Museum episode that we have played during our run on Old Time Radio Forever. And there will be more to come. The thing about Black Museum is it didn't run very long. There are only 40 or so episodes available throughout the internet. and uh, So try to keep Black Museum coming, but I don't want to play too many back-to-back. We'll run out. After a short swing music interlude, we will go back to this week in 1942. The NBC News Desk will give you World War II news from this week in 1942 on Old Time Radio Forever. (laughs)
6: for an early morning roundup of the day's news from the war fronts of the world. In just a moment, we are going to hear from our on-the-scenes reporter in the Far East, in London, and from our own nation's capital in Washington, D.C. First this morning, we are going to switch to the Netherlands East Indies for a report from Sidney Albright. Go ahead, Batavia, Java. This
7: is Sydney Albright, speaking in Batavia. The time is 9.30 on Sunday evening. Today's operation of the Japanese airport in Netherlands East Indies Territory extended over an area roughly the distance between New York and London. Muntok on the island of Bunker was raided, as was an unnamed city in New Guinea. A study of the map will clearly show the strategic importance of these two places as guardians of the approaches to Java. Bunker and Biletan Islands are the obstacles located at the foot ...of the South China Sea and the opening to the Java Sea... ...forming a natural line of resistance against any attempted southward... ...advance from Hainan Island, French Indochina, Thailand, or North Borneo. The importance of New Guinea decreases with every new Japanese occupation in the Celebes area... ...a part of which is already in enemy hands. On the surface, the most prominent single action today was the raid on Surabaya, where 35 persons were killed and 50 were wounded in an attempt to destroy the dock. Damage was also inflicted on the Navy base, but of relatively slight importance. An undisclosed number of Japanese planes carried out reconnaissance over Batavia yesterday. Uh The first enemy appearance over the capital city so far reported. In the district of Pangalangans, Near Bandung, a group of tea pickers working in the field were machine-gunned by a low-flying plane. However, there were no casualties. Dalembang in Sumatra was again attacked, this time by six bombers, with a strong escort of fighters. Some Dutch planes were destroyed on the ground when they caught fire as a result of the bombardment. In the attack on New Guinea, only two persons were wounded one seriously and one slightly. At Montauk, 10 civilians were killed, six seriously wounded, and 30 slightly wounded. The communique says many fires were started at Montauk, while damage was not insignificant. The communique also tells of enemy reconnaissance over East Java and over North Sumatra. Although the general situation in the Indies is more serious than ever before, as emphasized in the latest communiques, yesterday's announcement of the sinking of one Japanese cruiser and, and one large transport ship and the disbamaging of a cruiser and a submarine brought great satisfaction to observers here. It is fully realized that although the Indies' vital need at the moment is mainly air power, in order to stem the Japanese advance, it's the Japanese sea power that is responsible for most of the previous successes. Therefore, it is considered most important that the Japanese must realize the danger of their gradually increasing losses. The Dutch East Indies have been at war for 63 days, during which time 56 enemy ships have been put out of action. This includes warships of all types, numerous large transport ships, also some tankers carrying precious aviation gasoline, which is irreplaceable. On the other hand... The Dutch naval commander-in-chief stated yesterday, quote, the Netherlands Indies fleet is intact, at sea, and ready for action, unquote. The C N C emphasized that since the war started, Dutch naval losses have been almost negligible. Naval observers here stress that while the Japanese are losing valuable units of their battle fleet, in daring exploits in the narrow channels of the Indies, the future major engagement with the United States fleet, which Tokyo knows is inescapable, looms as a threatening shadow over the heads of the Japanese admirals, who know they'll need many, many months to replace the heavy losses already suffered. An unpleasant prospect for the warlords in the land of the rising sun. I now return you to San Francisco.
6: Next to the newsroom in New York. And here are some late bulletins. Moscow. The Russians are telling of a party of 93 Soviet border guards which operated for three months behind the German lines. The guards now have reached Russian-held territory again and they say they killed more than 1,400 German officers and men during their jaunt. They also mined roads, blew up enemy supply columns, and destroyed 10 bridges. And according to the government newspaper, Izvestia, they wrecked 15 miles of railway track as well as giving many signals to Soviet aircraft allowing them to bomb German troops and cars. Several times, the guerrilla band attacked villages where Germans were quartered. Once, they killed or wounded 180 out of 200 Finnish troops sleeping in a schoolhouse. And now, once again, we take you overseas. We switch you now to London. This is London. John McVeigh
8: speaking. London heard from Singapore today that the Japanese have stepped up their air and artillery bombardment of the island. The scale of the air raids and the shelling is said to have been considerably increased. The British guns fired across the Strait at enemy working parties and broke them up. Enemy forces moving toward the east of the mainland also came under British shell fire. The Japanese have made a landing on the island of Pulo Ubin between the east end of Singapore Island and the mainland. Authoritative quarters in London don't seem worried by the new Japanese move. They say the landing doesn't bring the Japanese any closer to their main objective. The only news London has from Libya so far today is that British mobile columns and air patrols had been operating over a wide area, west and southwest of the British front about Gazawa. It stated that no important enemy bodies were engaged. The story of the pikes issued to home guards has caused a lot of caustic comment in Britain. Most of the Sunday papers take a crack at the idea, and there are references to running the war with antiquated strategy and balaklava brains. Talking of British home guard equipment recalls the story of the home guard invasion maneuvers. The men had no equipment, but they were told to say bang to represent a rifle, bang, bang to represent a machine gun, and whoosh to mean the thrust of a bayonet. In the course of the maneuvers, one home guard met another and said bang. The man kept coming, so the first home guard said bang, bang. The man kept coming. Finally, the home guard said whoosh. The man kept coming, and the home guard shouted, what do you mean by not stopping when I've killed you three times with a rifle, a machine gun, and a bayonet? Then the second man spoke for the first time. Chug, chug, he said. I'm a tank. This is John McVane in London, returning you to New York.
6: For a word on events at home, here is Morgan Beatty speaking from the newsroom in Washington.
9: The Navy Department announces that the Sagone vacuum tanker, China Arrow, has been torpedoed off the Atlantic coast. But all the crew, 37 survivors, have been landed at Lewes, Delaware. The sinking of the China Arrow brings to 20 the number of ships sunk in Atlantic coast water. This news, plus the reports you have heard from Batavia, London, and New York, add up to this fact. The armed forces of the Allied nations are bracing today to receive new Axis blows, certainly in the Far East and in the Atlantic and possibly in the Mediterranean. To that end, the Allied High Command has been established in Washington. It is setting up a strategic board for military and supply problems and forming new commands in the Pacific to backstop the defenders of Singapore, the Philippines, and the Indies. The naming of Vice Admiral Leary of the United States fleet as commander of the United Nations forces in Australia and New Zealand waters is a part of our changing strategy, a plan that apparently embraces Australia as the great Allied base in the Far Pacific war zone. The selection of Admiral Leary is also special recognition of the demands of the Dutch and the Australians that an American admiral should command Pacific forces. On the domestic front, neither Congress nor parts of the executive branch of the government are quite so well braced to face possible setbacks in the war theaters. Congress, for example, has just emerged from a storm of criticism by constituents who don't like the idea of congressmen voting themselves the right to a federal pension. And congressmen prove they not only could take criticism, but they could, in the vernacular, dish it out, too. They are objecting loudly to putting actor and dancer friends of Mrs. Roosevelt on the federal payroll with civilian defense. And there are new and sinister clouds on the labor horizon again, too. In New York State, plans are afoot to form a dairy farmers' union as a subsidiary to John L. Lewis's mine workers. And in Detroit, CIO leader Walter P. Rother, director of the United Auto Workers' Union declares that war production programs cannot be a total success until labor is given a strong voice in organization. These demands follow within less than a week the frank admission by a shipbuilder's agent that his company has made unconscionable profits out of war work. And they also follow within two weeks after the farm block had enforced its demands for a 110% ceiling on farm prices and had given the Secretary of Agriculture a veto power over Price Control Administrator Leon Henderson. Taken together, all of this is plain evidence that group interests in the United States have not been completely subordinated as yet to the national interest. Labor, industry, the farmer, and all other large groups apparently are still absorbed in their own rival positions. They are thoroughly patriotic, of course, but they can't take their eye off the other fellow for fear he'll steal a march on them. All these groups would do well to read the letter placed in the congressional record yesterday by a congressman from Louisiana. The congressman called it an American soldier's letter. It was written the day after the war began by a man called Salvatore Anselmo, an American of Italian descent. And he says in part, I want you at home to realize that I'm proud I have the opportunity to offer my services for the defense of what I and all of us believe in. I feel privileged to fight for Dad's right to vote, for Mom's right to her religion, for Vincent's right to denounce one party or uphold another in public, for Rose's right to speak her mind and to act according to her principles within the law, of course, for Angie's and Nancy's right to marry whom they please and when they please. But, dearest people I love, don't be alarmed or hysterical. You, too, must be loyal and patriotic. No sacrifice, no matter what it may be, is too much to give in order to preserve your rights. Those are Salvador's convictions. Tomorrow, the nation goes on wartime. The clocks will be put on as the British say, or turned up as we say it, one hour at 2 a.m. The plan conserves daylight and probably will save a billion and a half kilowatt hours of electricity annually. That's all for now.
6: And that's the report up to this moment. These have been reports by Sidney Albright in Batavia, John McVeigh in London, and Morgan Beatty in Washington. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.
0: Thank you to the NBC News Desk for our war news from this week in 1942. I love adding in those news segments as a history teacher and a radio nerd, I I think it hits all the boxes for uh, people like myself. And I know that you have to share some of the same interests as I do um, to sit and think that that was the only way that news was uh, sent to the masses other than newspapers. So be sitting around your cathedral radio and hearing about the latest war news. Something to remember since we started in 1942 for this year uh, this is only two months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, so there is a lot of uncertainty in the American public, and radio news played a huge role in informing and soothing somewhat the American public. Our last episode today on this episode of Old Time Radio Forever, we go to 1951, and it is Jack Webb starring as Sergeant Joe Friday in Dragnet, the big setup On old time radio forever.
3: The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes,
10: best of all long cigarettes, brings you dragnet.
3: You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to burglary detail. A gang of clever thieves are at work in your city. In three months, they've looted fashionable homes of $100,000 in furs and jewels. There's no clue to their identity. Your job? Get them. In Fatima, the difference is quality. Yes, in Fatima, the difference is quality. Quality of tobaccos the finest domestic and Turkish varieties Extra Mild. Superbly blended to give you Fatima's much different, much better flavor and aroma. Quality of manufacture. Smooth, round, perfect Fatima
10: cigarettes. Rolled in the finest paper money can buy. Manufactured in the
3: newest and most modern of all cigarette factories. Quality, even to the appearance of the bright, clean, golden yellow Fatima package. So compare Fatima yourself. Today, you'll find Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. Yes, light up a Fatima. Your first puff will tell you... Ah, that's different. Because in Fatima, the difference is quality.
10: Dragnet the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action.
11: It was Wednesday, January 10th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Wisdom. My name's Friday. It was 11.15 a.m. when we got back to the city hall. Captain Wisdom's office. Hi, Skipper. Hi. How'd you make
12: out? Not too good. Same old story.
11: Anybody in the house when the thieves broke in? Yeah, the children's nurse was there. She said the burglary took place about midnight. She was asleep in bed at the time. Uh Uh-huh. The nurse said she woke up when she heard the thieves forcing their way in through a side door. She jumped out of bed, ran for the telephone in the hallway, and they grabbed her before she could reach it. Do her any harm? Well, a little, yeah. They tied her up, locked her in a closet. Same
12: M.O. as the other job skipper. Three men. Each of them wore gloves and a mask. They took all the furs and jewelry. They could find nothing else.
13: Nurse, give you the same general description on the three of them?
12: Yeah, it's not going to help much. Said two of the men were tall, medium bill, and one was short, heavy bill. She was so rattled she couldn't even remember the clothes they had on.
13: Twelve jobs for the same gang in three months, we don't even have a good description of them. How slow can we move? Doing everything we can, Skipper. Uh, excuse me. Burglary wisdom. Uh-huh. Not until two o'clock. No, that's all right. Two o'clock sharp. Right. Bye. Just had an appointment canceled. out. How about a cup of coffee downstairs?
12: Yeah. I didn't even have a chance for breakfast this morning. Fine with me. You grab my hat, when yeah. I'll get it. Here you go. Thanks.
13: Guess you talked to the owners of the house, huh? The place was broken into last night? Yeah, we did. Uh,
11: Mr. and Ms. Peterson. They got home a couple hours after the burglary. Took a quick inventory. What did they find missing? Furs and jewels. Same as the other jobs. Almost $12,000 worth. It's the biggest haul yet. I don't have to spell it out for you. We need a break on this thing. We need a bed.
12: More pressure from the front office, huh?
13: Coming from all sides. The victims are insurance companies and newspapers. They got a right to cry. Those thieves have been grabbing furs and jewels for three months.
12: We're doing everything about it we can do, Skipper. Planning stakeouts, working our informants, running down every lead we can get our hands on. Covered every angle I can think of. They don't
13: worry about the angles we cover. They want results. They want their property back.
12: Yeah, go ahead, Skipper. Go, go ahead.
13: ahead. Yeah, right. Now, how about the stuff they took on the job last night?
11: You get it on the stolen property list? Yeah, it's all listed. That's one thing that really gets me. Mm. What are the thieves doing with all that stuff, the furs and the jewelry? We've had every pawn shop in the city on the alert since they started working. Checked on every possible outlet we know of, any place they could use to dump the stuff. They haven't turned up a trace of it. No results in those APBs you got out? Well, yeah, a few, but none of them have panned out.
12: How about trying the cafeteria here? They got pretty good coffee. Well, yeah, me. that's a good idea. Why don't you two grab a table, I'll get the coffee. Right, Ben.
13: Oh, uh, hold the cream on mine, will you? Right, Skipper. How's this? Is this all right, Yeah, it's fine. Three chairs? Yeah. Okay. How about it, Friday? You or Ben got any ideas at all?
11: Well, there's one thing we wanted to talk over with you. We were kicking the idea around on the way back into the office. Uh-huh. Would you like a smoke? Oh, thanks. Mm-hmm. There you go. Last night, we were comparing the different stories we got from the burglary victims... Yeah, light. Thank you. You get a light all right?
13: Yeah, it's all right, thanks. Go ahead.
11: Well, that's one thing that all their stories seem to have in common. Now, that's counting all 12 victims. Yeah, what's that? Well, let's see. I got a piece of paper here. I got it all figured out. Yeah. We know all the victims are fairly wealthy people. They go out quite a bit. Parties, nightclubs, things like that. Yeah.
13: None of them were at home at the time the burglaries were pulled. That's
11: right, yeah.
12: Here you go. There's your Skipper. No uh, claims, Joe. Thank you very
11: much. I was just telling you, Captain, about that idea we were talking about on the way back in.
12: Yeah. Oh,
13: yeah. All right, so none of the victims were home at the time of the burglary. Where does it go from there?
11: Well, for one thing, we all pretty much agree that there must be a finger man working with the gang, don't we? Somebody who knows the victims aren't home. Somebody who also knows the victims aren't wearing the furs or jewels on that particular night. Is that right? That's right. We've been going on that assumption. The question is, who's the finger man? Well, that's what I'm trying to get at here. Ben and I compared the victims' stories. We found out that in every case, each of the victims had been out in some public place from three to five days before the night of the burglary. Right. Now, at that time, every one of them wore furs and expensive jewelry. Yeah. Well, why don't you read off some of those examples we've got there, Joe? Okay. Well, here's the first one. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Charles King. Now, on December 10th, they went to a nightclub out in Hollywood. Mrs. King wore a fur coat and quite a bit of jewelry. On December 14th, They went out to a theater. They didn't dress up at all. They left the furs and jewels at home. That's the night that their house was burglarized.
13: And this same pattern shows
11: up in every one of the victim stories? No. No, it's not quite that close, but the same elements seem to be there.
12: Here's another one, Skipper. Let's see. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lyons. November 20th, they went to a big party at a restaurant out on Sunset. Woman wore jewelry, expensive fur wrap. A week later, they went to a party at a friend's house. Mrs. Lyons left her furs and jewelry at home. The same night, the thieves broke
11: in. That's a pretty good angle. How do you tie up all the loose ends? Well, I see a paper again, Ben. We've got it halfway figured right here. Just before each of the victims was taken, they appeared in a public place, wearing the furs and jewelry. We've got a list of all the places, nightclubs, restaurants. There's about six of them here. So
12: the finger man for the gang must be watching these six places. He spots the people with the expensive furs and jewelry and tips off the gang. They watch the house. Next time the people go out and the thieves see the woman isn't wearing her furs and things, and they move in. It's
11: not a sure thing. We're just guessing, you
12: understand? What do you think? Well, that sounds like a fair guess. Let's move on it. We'll have to cover each of those nightclubs and the restaurants. It's going to take more men, more time. Could be nothing but a blind
11: alley. We got the men, we got the time. Let's try it. 10 p.m., Wednesday, January 10th. Our idea for stopping the burglary gang by reaching their spotter or finger man was put into operation. The half-dozen nightclubs and restaurants where we thought the spotter might be checking off richly-dressed couples as future burglary victims were placed under strict surveillance. Managers and employees of each of the places were questioned. It went slow. The first week got us four leads to check out. They led nowhere. Any and all suspicious-looking persons loitering in or near the clubs and restaurants that we had staked out were questioned and checked out thoroughly. Another week passed. No results. In the meantime, on January 23rd, the burglary gang hit again. This time at a dentist's home in the Hollywood Hills. The maid, a Miss Ilsa Bergstrom, was the only one present at the time of the burglary. Ben and I drove out to interview her.
14: It was soon before midnight... The Mr. and Mrs. was gone out. They sitting with the television.
11: The three men broke in the side door. Is that right,
12: Miss Bergstrom?
14: Yeah, the side door, I think so. They sitting with the television watching. I hear this sound. I turn around and the three men, they're right there in the room with me. I thought I could scream, but I couldn't.
11: Well, do you remember what the men looked like, Miss Bergstrom, how they were dressed?
14: I don't know. I was so much being frightened. One of them had a jacket on, I think. Dark jacket hmm. the Others I don't know
11: Anything else about them that you noticed?
14: Yeah, They had masks all over their faces I couldn't see I yumped up, I tried to scream But I was so much frightened
12: What'd they do then, Miss?
14: Well, yeah, they put a cloth all around my mouth So I couldn't make noise Then they tied my hands and my feet And they put me in the closet out there Just about the whole way I was kicking and hitting at them.
11: Mm -hmm. Had you ever seen any of the men before, Miss Burke? No,
14: never before.
11: Do you think you'd know any of the men if you saw them again?
14: I shouldn't be sure. One of them, maybe I might know him.
11: Well, how do you mean? Did you get a look at his face? Yeah,
14: only it was very quick. When they was putting me in the closet, I was hitting and kicking at them. Mm -hmm. One of the men, I knocked his hat off. It fell on the floor. I pulled at the thing on his face, uh, the mask. Almost, it came off.
12: Well, from what you could see, what did the man look like?
14: Blonde hair, I can remember. It's not so much on top here. It's only on the side here. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was uh, right there by the forehead, Mm -hmm. here, a scar Mm -hmm. going over that way.
11: Yeah. Was he a big man, do you know, as big as the other no, two?
14: No, no, he was a smaller man. He he was bigger this way, you know, feathered. Yeah. He was so mad when I knocked his head off, I thought maybe he'd kill me. They only put me in the closet, you know, and then they closed the door. I could hear them upstairs going through the Mr. and Mrs. room.
12: And you're pretty sure of the description you've given us, Miss Brooks? Oh,
14: Bertrand. yeah, the scar, the blonde hair. Not so much on top. I remember that. It was... Yeah, well, I was so much frightened, I thought they would kill me.
11: Mm-hmm. Now, after they locked you in the closet, they didn't come back? That's the last you saw of them? Yeah,
14: they didn't come back to me. I could hear them moving around upstairs, and then I could hear them leave after a while. like all night before the Mr. and Mrs. came home and found me. I was so much frightened. This thing wouldn't happen in Sweden. That's where I come from, Sweden.
12: Yes, ma'am. You sure there's nothing else about these men that you've noticed or something we ought to know about? No,
14: everything I saw just what happened, I told you the way it was. This never would have happened in Sweden, not like this, these robbers like this.
12: Burglars, man.
14: Yeah, these burglars. I thought I'd be dead. Never would happen in Sweden like this.
12: You mean you don't have burglars in Sweden?
14: Oh, yeah, yeah, we have burglars.
11: Well, then, just how do you mean
12: well,
14: that? We have burglars, but they don't break in the house. When somebody's there, they're a little bit gentlemen. Is that so? Yeah, they might tell everybody's going from the house. Then they break it. Even burglars should be gentlemen a little bit.
11: Before we left the house, we checked with the owners, took their crime report and a list of their stolen property, some $6,000 in jewelry and fur coats. The maid's description of one of the three men in the gang wasn't complete, but it was the best that we'd had on them in three months. Frank Cunningham and the Eye Bureau had the description of the scar on the suspect's forehead checked through the oddity file. Meantime, Ben and I paired up the additional facts about the suspect. The scar, the color and condition of his hair, along with his general description, his approximate weight and height. We had the stats office make a run for us and all ex-cons with burglary records who fitted the overall description. They came up with a list of ten names and we started checking them out. One of the first listed was a Russell Snow. We checked his last known address, but he'd moved. His mail was being forwarded in care of his brother George Snow, who managed the Neptune Plunge, a public indoor swimming pool in the East Hollywood neighborhood. We drove out to interview the brother.
12: Pretty good size for an indoor pool, huh? Yeah, it is. It's a nice layout they got. Must be the office straight ahead there. Thanks, Joe. Joe, what's that? That girl over there, look at that bathing suit she's got on. Yeah, they keep getting smaller, don't they? Makes you embarrassed just to look at them. Yeah, well, maybe I'm just getting old. Yeah. Yes, sir? We're looking for George Snow. Yeah, I'm him. Police officers, Mr. Snow, would like to talk to you a few minutes if we could.
15: Oh, yeah. Hey, let me grab a towel over here and get right off, though. Sure. Come on over. Pull up one of these deck chairs here.
12: All right, thank Thanks. you very much.
15: Well, what is it, officers? What can I do for you?
11: You have a brother, isn't that right, sir? A Russell Snow? Yeah, that's right. Russ is my brother. Anything wrong? Well, we'd like to locate him if we could. Do you know where we can find him?
15: No. don't think I can. Last I heard from Russ was about six months ago. Said he was going to take a job in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Not in trouble again, is he?
12: Not that we know of. We'd like to locate him, that's all. I don't think I can help you much.
15: Russ isn't much of a letter writer. Only time I hear from him is when he's in town. We've checked at the last place your brother was staying. They told us he left word to forward all his mail here to you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Russ asked me to take care of it. No letters have come through so far, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Were you to hang on
11: to his mail or send
15: it on to him in Minneapolis? No, I was going to hang on to him. Russ said he'd pick up his mail next time he was through. As I say, that was six months ago. I haven't seen or heard from him
12: since. Then you wouldn't know if he was actually in Minneapolis or not.
15: Well, no, I wouldn't. Guess you know, my brother Russell had a police record. Yeah, sir, we do. He had that trouble a couple of years ago, that burglary rep. I think Russ learned his lesson.
12: Are you your brother's only living relative? I mean, is there anyone else in town who might have heard from him? I don't know, Alston. Excuse me just a minute. All
15: right, kids, no running around the side of the pool, you hear? You slip and break your neck. No more running. Sorry, i got to watch him hawk. Yes, sir. Like I was saying, I can't think of anybody who might have heard from Russ. I'm his only relation, but he does have a few friends around town. I mean, legitimate fellas, you know? Yeah, He huh They come around once in a while, drop in say hello. Have any of them heard from your brother? He might have, but I didn't ask him. There's old Matt Garson. He's a good friend of my brother's. He was in the other day, but he didn't say anything about hearing from Russ. <laughs> might be that he has. Maybe he didn't think to mention it. Where does this Matt Garson stay, do you know? I really couldn't tell you, officer. <laughs> That's a real character, kind of a floater. Doesn't stay with one job more than two months. Like last week when he was in here. Yes, yeah, sir? He's a real pitchman. Gave me a big sales talk. Biggest bargain on earth. Said he'd sell me a couple
11: of them real cheap. I didn't have any use for him. What's that, sir? For a coach. Before we left, George Snow gave us a complete description of Matt Garson together with the names of five of Garson's acquaintances who might know of his whereabouts. When Ben and I got back to the city hall, we checked Garson's name and description through R&I. He had a record of two fairly recent arrests, but no convictions. Both arrests were for suspicion of burglary. We checked on Garson's last known residence. He'd moved, no forwarding address. His last place of employment was listed as the Park Tivoli Nightclub out on Wilshire Boulevard. The Park Tivoli was one of the six places that we'd staked out as a possible working ground for the burglary gang's finger man. A place where he could spot expensively dressed persons, check on their home addresses, and line them up as future burglary victims. Ben put in a call to the manager of the Park Tivoli to check on Garson's employment.
12: What was that, sir? Last July. Mm-hmm, I see. Well, yes, yeah, sir, we'll probably be out tonight. Right, thank you. Bye. What'd you get? Garson worked out there, all right. Parking lot attendant. He quit last July. Mm-hmm. If he's the guy checking off the customer's furs and jewels, he's in a perfect spot. Yeah. Manager told me that Garson has a girlfriend. She still works at the club. Might be the answer, Joe. Well, how do you figure? She runs a hat check stand. <laughs>
10: We're in the communications division of a metropolitan police department. The teletype room. 43, LOS
13: 52951. 12.03 PM APB. WMA 150, 5'6", dark hair, dark eyes. Wearing gray suit, no hat. Suspect is wearing glasses. Heavy build, 22 years. Suspect is armed with blue steel revolver. Any information forward you have just heard a teletype description of a suspect this
10: information
3: will apply to many but careful screening will eliminate all but one you'll find the same is true when you examine king size cigarettes yes careful screening will eliminate all but fatima compare fatima fatimas are the same
10: length as any other king size cigarette 85 millimeters fatima has the same
3: circumference one and one sixty-fourth inches around And Fatima filters the smoke exactly the same long distance as other king-size cigarettes. But in Fatima, the difference is quality. Fatima gives you extra mildness, a much different, much better flavor and aroma. You get all the advantages of extra length plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. So compare Fatima yourself. Your first puff will tell you...
13: Ah, that's different.
3: Yes, in Fatima, the difference is quality. Buy Fatima. Best of all long cigarettes.
11: One of the biggest problems that faces a police officer working the burglary detail is not only apprehending the thief, but also recovering the stolen property. Dozens of criminals of this type will spend five, ten, or even 15 years in prison if they know that on their release they will have a stake of thousands of dollars in stolen property which they've hidden somewhere to start over again with. Thursday, January 26th, 5 p.m. We got out a broadcast and an APB on the burglary suspect, Matt Garson. Then we began checking back on his girlfriend, Virginia Ramsey, who worked as a hat check girl at the Park Tivoli nightclub on Wilshire Boulevard. It was one of the six probable places where we thought that the finger man for the burglary gang was lining up potential victims. Despite the fact that she often associated with known criminal suspects, the Ramsey girl had no previous criminal record herself. That night, after she reported in for work at the club, Ben and I checked her apartment. In one of the closets, we found three expensive fur coats. They were all identified as property taken in previous burglaries by the gang. In a strong box in the desk, we found a half a dozen pieces of expensive jewelry also identified on the stolen property list. Ben and I got in the car and drove to the Park Tivoli nightclub.
16: Your hat, sir. Check your hat.
11: Your name, Virginia Ramsey?
16: Yes, that's right.
11: Police officers, Miss Ramsey. Like to talk to you downtown. Beg your pardon? I say we're police officers. Here's our identification. Like to talk to you downtown.
16: What's it all about? I haven't done anything.
11: Then there's no reason to worry.
12: We'd just like to ask you a few questions, that's all. What about a man by the name of Matt Garson. I understand you know him quite well.
16: No, I don't know him. I don't even know what you're talking about.
12: You want to get your
11: coat, Miss Ramsey? We'll talk it over downtown, huh?
16: I'm working now. Listen, I won't be off till two o'clock. I can't just walk off the job.
11: We just talked to the manager. He's going to have one of the other girls take your place. Do you want to get your coat, please?
16: All right. You sure you checked with the manager? I don't want to lose my job leaving like we this. We
12: talked to him. It's all right. This way, please. Out the side door. I'd
16: like to know what this whole thing's all about. I think I have a right to know pulling me off a job like this.
11: We told you, Miss Ramsey, it's about a friend of yours, Matt Garson. He used to work here at the club, didn't
16: he? I wouldn't know. A lot of people work here. I don't know them all. Why should you want him, anyway? Do you know him? I think I might, yes. Yes. Not sure. Why do you want it?
11: For interrogation. Just like to ask him a few questions. Why? you ready to admit that you know Garson?
16: I think I might. Yeah, I know him.
12: Want to get in, Miss Ramsey?
16: I still don't know what it's all about. Why do you want Matt Garson?
11: Same reason we want you. Suspicion of burglary.
16: You don't know what you're talking about. You can't prove anything against me.
11: We already have, miss. Huh? We found three fur coats in your apartment. There was some jewelry there, too.
16: Those things are mine. Every one of them, they're all mine.
11: All right, come on, you're wasting time. They're stolen property, you know that. How about
12: it, miss? You want to tell us about Matt Garson? Where is he?
16: I told you. Told you the first time. Yeah? I don't know him.
11: 10 p.m. We drove the suspect, Virginia Ramsey, downtown to the city hall and took her to the interrogation room. We questioned her continuously until well past midnight. She refused to admit anything. We gave her time to rest a little and sent out for some food. Then we resumed the interrogations. 2 a.m., the Ramsey girl still refused to admit any connection with Matt Garson, his friend Russell Snow, or any members of the burglary gang. We stayed with it. By 4 a.m., we'd halfway convinced her that protecting the members of the gang wasn't the answer, that the best thing for her to do would be to cooperate. 5.30 a.m.
16: Can I have a cigarette?
11: Yeah. Yeah, here you are.
16: I'll tell you about it. I know Matt Garson. He's one of the gang. You know where he is? No. He got me into it. He made me do it. There wasn't anything else I could do.
11: What did he make you do?
16: Well, when I was checking coats and things at the club, I was supposed to watch for customers with money, expensive furs and jewels. I found out who they were, and then I'd tell Matt. He'd tell the others.
12: Who are the others?
16: One of them's Johnny Lang. There are a couple of others, but I don't know their names. Believe me, Sergeant, Matt made me do it. He got me into it before I knew what it was all about. When I found out, he threatened to frame me if I didn't go along with him.
11: Do you know where any of these men live, where they hang out?
16: No. None of them, not even Matt. Ever since he moved, he wouldn't give me his new address.
11: Do you think Garson will try to contact you at your apartment in the next few days, maybe?
16: No, I don't think so. Not until after the next job. They're waiting on it now. They've been watching the house. Which house is that? A place out in West Hollywood. Wealthy people. They were in the club about a week ago.
11: And the gang's waiting for them to go out some night and leave their valuables at home, is that
16: Yeah, it? that's right. Matt says it's an easy house to break into. He thinks it ought to be a cinch.
11: Matt ought to know better.
16: Huh?
11: It's the easy ones you trip over. Before we booked her in on suspicion of burglary, Virginia Ramsey gave us the name and address of the people in West Hollywood who were supposedly the next victims on the burglary gang's list. Later in the morning, we drove out to see the people. A Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Thornson told them the story and laid out our plans, which they agreed to. That night, the Thornsons left their home a few minutes before nine. They were simply dressed, no furs, no jewels. At 9.35, three men scaled a fence at the rear of the Thornsons' home and broke in through a side door. Right behind them was a detail of a half a dozen officers who moved in and made the arrest. The three suspects were taken downtown where they were identified as Russell Snow, Matt Garson, and Howard Ferris. We searched their apartments, their cars, and garages. There was no trace of the stolen property. Each of the men were brought to the interrogation room separately for questioning. Matt Garson was the first. He denied any knowledge of where the loot was hidden.
12: That's the truth. I don't know where the stuff is. I work for the outfit, that's all.
11: You've been working for
12: three months without a payoff. Is that what you're trying to tell her? Well, we haven't been turning over everything we got. We've been holding out half the stuff. Sold it on the side. I just work for the outfit, that's all. That's not the way we get it, Garson. You're supposed to be the big man. You masterminded the deal. Me? Who
11: told you that? Your girlfriend, Virginia Ramsey. We picked her up yesterday. She told us everything. What'd she tell you? You're the big man. It was your idea. You ran the works. What about it,
12: Garson? Big joke, Sergeant. On both of us. What do you mean? You can ask the other boys. They'll tell you the same thing. We can prove it, too. There's only one boss in this operation. Yeah. Virginia Ramsey.
11: For a 23-year-old girl, it seemed like a new record of some kind, if it was true. We checked the other suspects, Russell Snow and Howard Ferris. They told us substantially the same story. The Ramsey girl had formulated all the plans and directed the entire operation of the gang since its inception. They insisted that they had no idea where the stolen property was hidden, but they did know that the Ramsey girl had a safety deposit box in a downtown bank. We made a canvas of banks in the downtown area and a day later we located the safety deposit box listed in Miss Ramsey's name. We obtained a court order and the box was opened. In it, we found practically all of the stolen jewelry, almost $50,000 worth. Ben and I went back to the main jail where we had Virginia Ramsey signed out for investigation. We brought her to the interrogation room where we confronted her with the evidence.
16: I didn't think you'd find out. I didn't think you'd ever find out.
11: How about the furs, Miss Ramsey?
16: I got the key. You can have it. I rented a private garage. I got them stored in there. All of them? Just about, yeah. You picked up the others in my apartment.
11: How'd you manage to run this whole operation? Those men you had working for you, you cut them in for practically nothing. They were experts, the best in the business.
16: That's why I hired them. They were the best. It's too bad. Should have worked out. Too bad didn't go.
12: You had a pretty fair run.
16: Wasn't half bad for me, was it? Only 23? First time I ever tried anything like it.
12: What gave you the idea?
16: I don't know. I wanted things. Pretty smart setup, though, don't you think, Sergeant? How's that? Wouldn't you say I played the whole thing pretty smart?
11: Oh, I don't know. You figure it. What? You're in jail, aren't you?
3: The story you've just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 28th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 89, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you.
11: Friends, if you smoke a long cigarette, I want you to get acquainted with Fatima's. This weekend, for instance, when you're relaxing and taking it easy, you'll really appreciate Fatima's better flavor and aroma. And I know you'll like Fatima's extra mildness. Make a note tomorrow. Buy Fatima's in the familiar yellow carton.
3: 23-year-old Virginia Ramsey, the leader of the gang was tried and convicted on four counts of first-degree burglary and four counts of receiving stolen property. The three male members of the gang were convicted of first-degree burglary, also four counts. They are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. First-degree burglary is punishable by imprisonment for not less than five years. Receiving stolen property is punishable by imprisonment for not less than six months, nor more than five years. Ladies and gentlemen... Vacation time is here again, and a great many of you will be taking trips in your automobile. Danger is never absent from the highways of America. Be careful. The care you take may save a life, and that life may be your own.
10: You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los
3: Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Counter Spy next over most NBC stations.